This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, established in 1986 as a federal holiday. It's observed on the third Monday of January each year to coincide with King's birthday, which was this past Thursday, January 15th. Uh, He would be this week, 86 years old. 1968, the year I was born, immediately following his assassination, Representative John Conyers introduced a bill in Congress to make King's birthday a national holiday. Conyers, instead of highlighting the civil rights activity of King, Conyers highlighted his activism on behalf of trade unions. And so for the next decade, Unions did the majority of campaigning for the holiday. Eight years later, Jimmy Carter assumed office, 1976, and Carter also, who had been helped greatly by the unions, Democrat from Georgia, uh, and all of their members, he endorsed the King Day bill himself. A good thing happened during Carter's term. See, a good thing did happen within Carter's term for all you good Republicans um, who remember 18%. Uh, house rates and all of that, but a good thing happened during his term. Both sides of the political spectrum got on the wagon, and they realized that this should not be a partisan issue, that it was bigger than unions or non-unions. And so the corporate community also joined in, both sides of the political spectrum, and, and the general public really got involved. In 1980, you might remember Stevie Wonder actually released a commemorative single 12 years after King's death called Happy Birthday. And subsequently, I still remember this, I was in sixth, maybe seventh grade, he hosted with some others a rally for peace press conference. That was 81. In the aftermath of that song, the rally for peace, six million signatures were collected for a petition to Congress. And the petition was that they would pass this bill making King's birthday a national holiday. This was the largest petition at that time and maybe since. The drive continued to gain momentum in spite of the fact that there was a lot of opposition. A lot of the opposition came from Senator Jesse Helms. Helms himself was quick to say this was not about civil rights. Helms was critical of King because of his uh, lack of support and his opposition to the Vietnam War. And Helms said he purportedly was tied to the Communist Party, and many of you remember all of that. So Helms, bothered by these purported ties to the Communist Party, uh, bothered by his opposition to the Vietnam War, Helms actually made inflammatory comments a couple of times and openly questioned whether MLK was an important enough figure to receive such an honor. And he was quick to say, he is an important figure, but is he important enough to get a national holiday? Quietly, President Ronald Reagan was also opposed to the holiday. Again, not on grounds, in fairness to him, not on grounds of civil rights, but on the grounds of the cost of a federal holiday. Um, The expense of that was what Reagan spoke to. Uh, He finally relented after Congress passed the King Day Bill And they passed that in the House, 338 to 90, and in the Senate, 78 to 22. And not reluctantly, um, Reagan relented and he signed the bill on November 2nd, 1983 in the White House Rose Garden. 
Almost two years later, January 20th, 1986, it was observed for the first time. Interestingly, it took another 14 years before it was officially observed by all 50 states. Some states were recalcitrant and resistant. January of 2000, the 50th state finally caved and recognized. January of 2006, just eight years ago, the last county in the U.S. to officially make it a paid holiday was Greenville County, South Carolina. They finally gave in. Some states, for various reasons, some good, some less than good, uh, some states like Utah, Arizona, and New Hampshire call it Human Rights Day. Uh, they refer to it, some refer to it as Civil Rights Day. My state from which I hail, Arkansas, do you know what Arkansas calls this day tomorrow? The birthday of Robert E. Lee and Martin Luther King Jr. That is its official title. So glad to be in Tennessee. <laughs> not, not true. Arkansas is better than that. And, and I, would say, um, I would say a lot of us are better than our structures. Even the leaders are better than our structures. Sometimes we're better than our theology. Virginia for years. It was just recently that Virginia finally gave in and changed the name. You know, what, you know what the name in Virginia was of tomorrow? Jackson, Lee, and King Day. As in Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and Martin Luther King Jr. I think Alabama is still Robert E. Lee and Martin Luther King Day. So <clears throat> back to Reagan. Uh, back to Reagan Reagan's push was that if we do this, it will be the fourth federal holiday to honor an individual. You know who the three individuals before King are that are honored? Christopher Columbus, George Washington. You know the third one? No, Jesus. It's called Christmas, remember? <laughs> so this is the fourth. So it's a big deal to have a federal holiday. So it begs the question, who was this man and what did he do to merit such an honor? And why in the world would somebody in church take a day of worship of God to discuss this? Because this man serves us as a very effective lens through which to look at Christ, the cause of God, the kingdom of God, a very apt lens. So who was this man? What can we learn from his short life of just less than four decades? A bit of a history lesson. I generally do this almost every year on this Sunday. He was born Michael Luther King, January 15th, 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia. He was the grandson and son of two very powerful men, Baptist ministers there in Atlanta, his name was changed when he was five years old, six years old. His name was changed from Michael to Martin in keeping with his father, Michael King Sr., also changing his name to Martin. His father, a good Protestant, a good Christian Protestant, uh, changed both he and his son's name because of the respect that he had for the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. Michael... Martin Luther King Jr. was a precocious child. He actually lived in a middle to upper middle class 
neighborhood and had that lifestyle ahead of the time for many of the people for whom he later fought. Precocious academically, he skipped two years in high school and graduated high school at the age of 15. He matriculated to the alma mater of his father and grandfather. He matriculated after high school to Morehouse College and he graduated there with honors at the age of 19 in 1948. He left there and he went to Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, an almost all-white school for ministers. And there he was awarded a BD three years later in 1951. Interestingly, at Crozer, his senior year, 1951, he was voted president of his class by an almost completely Caucasian constituency. So the church, Crozer, many were working toward the ends that would ultimately become the heart and the drive of his life. He left Crozer and he went to Boston University in 1951. He was 22 years old uh, with two undergrad degrees. He went on to Boston University to study systematic theology. He had a heart for academics and he could have been a, a good academic. He was hooded four years later in 1955. While he was in Boston, he met a beautiful, artistic, intelligent, and classy young lady named Coretta Scott. They later were married and they had four children, two boys and two girls. At the age of 18, he was ordained in 1947 at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, the church that I aforementioned was famously pastored by his father and grandfather for almost 60 years. He spent the last nine years of his life co-pastoring there with his dad. He left there and, or he left Boston University in 1954, a year before being hooded with his doctorate, and he assumed his first pastorate, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And there in Montgomery, Alabama, at the age of 25, already involved with the fomenting, burgeoning civil rights movement, he was already a board member of the NAACP at the age of 25, a precocious kid. But fate struck some two years after he arrived. It was December 1st, 1955, when a 42-year-old seamstress, weary not only in hips and knees and joints, but weary in her soul, her name was Rosa Parks. She refused to comply with the Jim Crow law and give up her seat on a Montgomery municipal bus to a white man. Now, remember... Rosa, as many of us know, she had had a previous encounter with James Blake, the driver of that bus, in 1943. Uh, this was a long-standing problem that was brewing there in Montgomery. The municipal bus had as its policy that the first four rows of the bus were reserved strictly for whites. No black person could ever sit in those four rows. There was a section in the back of the bus that the blacks could set in, it was reserved explicitly for them, and between those four rows and the section for African Americans was a middle section, and the blacks could, or the non-whites, could sit in that middle section until a white person got on the bus. And if one white person got on the bus, the entire middle section had to be vacated. Not only this, but the incredible indignity was that every person who got on the bus would climb the stairs and place their money in the receptacle. But upon placing money in a receptacle, black men and women 
would have to climb back down the stairs and whether in sleet or snow, go to the back of the bus and enter the bus there. Amazing. 60 years later, we look back at that and think, my God, were we there? And you can only wonder 60 years from now what we will look back on and say, my God, were we there? And truly, you can only wonder that. It takes prophetic, it takes prophetic vision and that imperfect to even speculate. On that particular day, Rosa Parks got on the bus and when the police officer came, he asked Blake, do you want to sign out a warrant or just let her go with a warning? And Blake said, I want her arrested. And the young man, the officer looked at Rosa Parks and said, ma'am, I may have to arrest you now. And Rosa Parks said, I looked at him with strength, strength that I had never known. She said, for you see, my parents had always taught me to keep my head down. My parents had taught me in that Jim Crow South to not push things and it would be all right for me. My parents taught me that and they taught me to fear above all things that jail down there, that county jail. And she said, on this particular day, I realized that for fear of that jail, I had incarcerated myself all of my life in a prison greater than any jail. And she said, with great peace, I looked at him and said, you may do that. And I was free. The picture of her fingerprinting was indeed that proverbial shot heard around the world. And the black community there in Montgomery formed a new organization to lead a, boy, a bus boycott. Philip Yancey says, quote, our friend who was here uh, just under a year ago, Yancey said, by default, that organization chose as a compromise candidate for its leadership the new minister in town, the 26-year-old king who looked more like a teen than a man. Martin Luther accepted the appointment in spite of the sad fact that by his own admission earlier that same year in March, when a 15-year-old girl named Claudette Colvin had suffered the same fate, when asked to get involved, King refused to get involved, saying he needed to focus, quote, his attention on leading his church, something he forever regretted and something that gave him great mercy for scared white ministers who would follow in that same regard. He finally relented, led the movement, and 382 days later, the boycott resulted in the Supreme Court decision allowing, or rather outlawing, racial segregation on all public transport. Immediately after King was announced as the boycott's leader, in the first days of the boycott, he was arrested and jailed, jailed, for driving 30 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone, which he said he did not do because he was no fool. He always drove under the speed limit. The next evening after being arrested, <clears throat> after being released, King said that he sat at his kitchen table, 26 years old, wondering if he could do this. As he sat there wrestling within his own soul and scared, he said the phone rang and a voice on the other end of the line with expletives beyond the scope of this pulpit's ability to use, unless you're Phyllis Tickle, 
Sorry for those that were not here. <laughs> Love you, Phyllis. The voice on the other end of the line said, we are tired of you and your mess. And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and we're going to blow up your house. A 26-year-old young man that looked like a teen hung up the phone and admitted that at that moment he began to try to figure a way out. In the next room lay sleeping his young wife Coretta and their newborn daughter Yolanda. He described that night in a sermon given a few years later and I've heard it on Reel to Reel. I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there a few feet away asleep. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it anymore. I was weak. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. King admitted later in his own work that faith had never been something deeply personal to him. He nepotistically made his way to the ministry following the lineage of a grandfather and a father, but was that child who always pushed back on the Sunday school teacher, dubious to the facts of the Bible, even doubting the resurrection. That followed him through his academic career. This was a man on the verge of conversion. I discovered then that religion had to become real to me and I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee and I will never forget it. I prayed a prayer. I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now and I'm faltering and I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I can hear an inner voice for the first time in my life speaking to me. And it said, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice, son. Stand up for truth. I heard him say, lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me. Never to leave me alone. As promised, three nights later, a bomb exploded on the porch of their home, and almost miraculously, the lives of Martin, Coretta, and Yolanda were spared. The damage was significant, and as King explored what had happened, he said he was filled with a supernatural serenity. And he said, quote, my experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. And for the rest of his 13 years on earth, the promise of God's continuing abiding presence buoyed and sustained him. 
1957, at the age of 28, he was elected president of the newly formed but quickly formidable Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. His role in the civil rights struggle escalated rapidly, his powerful gifts forging space for him. In 1959, he was so burdened by the local church that he served and his inability to give himself completely to it that he resigned Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and he made his way to Ebenezer in Atlanta to be the co-pastor with his father. In the ensuing years, he devoted himself to organizing historical marches and demonstrations in such cities as Birmingham, St. Augustine, Selma, and Chicago. He was repeatedly arrested and jailed. He suffered severe beatings on multiple occasions, but some say that his finest hour came August 28, 1963, when at the age of 34 years old, he led over a quarter million people in the Great March on Washington, D.C. The march culminated in his legendary speech, I Have a Dream, given at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and joining Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, all of us would concur almost unanimously that it is one of the two greatest speeches in U.S. history. The next year, the global community awarded him its highest honor, the Nobel Peace Prize. At 34, he was, to that point, the youngest person ever so honored. In 1966, depressed, bedraggled, and weary in soul, his own testimony was that his dream now had become a nightmare, and he languished to believe that faith would ever end in sight on this matter. But still pressing on in 66, in a radically bold move, King moved his family into a Chicago slum to demonstrate their support and concern for the impoverished city dwellers there, black or white. His co-laborer, Ralph Abernathy, later wrote that they received a worse reception in this northern city than they had ever received anywhere in the South. The violence and the wrath, Abernathy said, were so menacing that it deeply shook both he and King. All of his biographers recount, if you've read the books, you have recounted, you have read the tense encounter between King and his compatriots and Chicago's corrupt mayor, Richard Daly. King's workers were feeling deeply betrayed by Daly because Daly had promised them a continued right to march, not only a right to march, but Daly had promised them in all of their gatherings police protection. In the meantime, behind their back, Daly had secretly attained court orders to ban all future marches. They came to the Waterloo meeting. King was there with his comrades. Daly was there with his. And King, strangely all reported, sat silently through a long period of acrimony and rancor. And just as the meeting was about to break apart in bitterness and futility, King spoke up with a calm intensity, and this is what he said. I know you are tired of our demonstrations, but let me say that if you are tired of demonstrations, please hear me, I am tired of demonstrating. I am tired of the threat of death. I want to live. I don't want to be a martyr. And there are moments when I doubt if I am going to make it through. I understand, Mayor Daly, that you are tired. But we are tired of getting hit. We are tired of being beaten. We are tired of going to jail. 
But the important thing is not how tired we are. The important thing is to get rid of the conditions that have led us to march. Now, gentlemen, King said, you know we don't have much. We don't have much money, we don't have much education, and we don't have political power. King softened and whispered, Mr. Daly, all we have is our bodies. And you are asking us to give up the one thing that we have when you say, don't march. On those words, the meeting shifted and a corrupt mayor's heart softened and a new deal was reached with Daly and Chicago. We have only our bodies. The simple phrase rose from the deepest core of King's spiritual philosophy. It was rooted in his understanding of God and life. King knew and held to Colossians 1.24 that we are filling up in our bodies the sufferings of Jesus, which were incomplete. You see, the year he had entered seminary, 1948, Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated on his way to a prayer meeting in New Delhi. King was so arrested by Gandhi's death that 11 years later, fulfilling a promise to himself internally, he and Coretta, finally with enough money, ventured to India to observe in person the effect of nonviolent resistance. Something rooted deeper in King's heart than by Gandhi's life, but rooted even in Scripture. For the verse that he most detested in Scripture that he finally came to understand was 1 Peter 2. Slaves, be submissive to your masters, even if they beat you without cause. For to this you were called. For Christ has left us an example that when reviled, reviled not again, but entrusted himself into the hands of him who judges righteously. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray, but have returned now to the shepherd of our souls. And King finally understood that that text horribly used to defend slavery for 18 and a half centuries by a church that had a high view of Scripture. King finally realized that that text was no more a defense of slavery than it was a defense of the crucifixion of God, but in the beauty of a true high view of Scripture, saw through the superficial context and realized that what that text was saying was that in a world where abominable things like slavery and the crucifixion of God happens, that even these things could be redeemed by the utilitarian and economic hand of providence to redeem even those who perpetrate such acts. For in doing so, you may win them, Peter said, when they see your behavior. King later said, strangely, Gandhi, who is called non-Christian, Gandhi was the first person in history to actually live the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals. The first person in history to live the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals. In his book, Stride Toward Freedom, King said something that I consider to be very profound. <clears throat> I'll read a quick quote, wish I could read more to you now. But King said, when I went to Montgomery as a pastor, I had not the slightest idea 
that I would later become involved in a crisis in which nonviolent resistance would be applicable. I neither started the protest nor suggested it. I simply responded to the call, finally, of the people for a spokesman. When the protest began, my mind consciously or unconsciously was driven back to the Sermon on the Mount with its sublime teachings on love and to the Gandhian method of nonviolent resistance. He left India, in his words, quote, more convinced than ever before that the nonviolent resistance, nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom. Later, he went even further, saying, quote, one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty, for in accepting the cross, you very well may be accepting the very source of redemption for those who execute it. He was, he was stabbed in New York by a woman, should have died. The knife lodged a fraction of an inch from his aorta. In Birmingham, he was accosted by a man while King stood on the platform at a demonstration as King's supporters, given less to nonviolent resistance than he, as they overwhelmed the man and ensued to take him apart limb by limb. King, while still on the ground, cried through a bloody mouth, screaming at his followers, do not harm him. Pray for him. And reluctantly, they reserved their blows and they held the man and prayed for him. He never called these people his enemies. He always called them simply his sick, white brothers and sisters. Many blacks broke. They broke beneath the weight of nightsticks, attack dogs, water cannons, cattle prods, bombs, torture, the murders of their friends and families, and simply and generally indignity. And who can scarcely blame them in retrospect? These that broke drifted toward the rhetoric of black power, armed revolt, and they derisively called King Uncle Tom and Delaud. And by the moment of his death, he was not certain from which side the bullet would come. Yet whenever violent riots broke out, King, welcomed or unwelcomed, always continued to appear. And he always was there calling for peace, desperately in the midst of the blows, in his words, desperately trying to keep the abused from becoming abusers, which would be the worst abuse he said they could ever endure, and sadly, it would be of their own hand and heart. Forever quoting Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Sadly, many stooped to the tactics of their oppressors. And instead of king's living water, they threw gasoline on a fire. He consistently, doggedly interjected into his speeches this newly brewing faith in his own soul by saying that the message of Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, he said, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tension-packed content 
And we must carry that cross until it leaves its mark deeply upon our souls and backs and redeems us to that more excellent way which comes only through suffering. It's often noted that King strategically sought out individuals like Sheriff Bull Connor in Selma. He would stage scenes of confrontation not because he was a rabble-rouser, but because he believed crosses were meant to be lifted high and crosses redemptively had the capacity to draw all men unto God. He believed that the only thing that could possibly cut through the calluses of a nation's seared soul was for that nation to witness firsthand the brutalities and agony of the marchers as in Selma and other places. And one of his greatest struggles was at Selma when he called his own friends and had them bring their own children, teenage children, knowing, he said, that the water cannons would soon be fired and the dogs would be on their arms. He wanted us to be forced to see silent demonstrators mercilessly clubbed and attacked by vicious trained dogs, all because they simply wanted to drink from the same water fountain as you. He wanted us to see them fill up in their bodies the wounds of Jesus, which were not complete, and he wanted more than anything for us to see them, like Jesus, offer no fight or resistance. Even for King, this approach was not without its struggles. In his letters from the Birmingham jail, a moving anthology of his thoughts that was smuggled out on bits of toilet paper and in the margins of newspapers, King recounted in compelling detail his own desperate struggle to forgive, his own desperate struggle with bitterness, his own desperate struggle to stay this nearly impossible soul course first established by his Lord who was not only led to the slaughter but was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And perhaps now as theology continues to unfold we realize that it was the lambness more than the slaughter that was our ultimate redemption. In an address to some restless students who were beginning to crumble under the load King said this, there is something in this student movement which says to us that we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, some may have to get scarred up, but we shall overcome. Before the victory of brotherhood is achieved, some will maybe face physical death, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, some will lose jobs. Some will be called communists and reds merely because they believe in brotherhood. Some will be dismissed as dangerous rabble-rousers and agitators merely because they're standing up for what is right, but we shall overcome. That is the basis of this movement. And as I like to say, there is something in this universe that justifies Carlisle in saying that no lie can live forever. We shall overcome because there is something in this universe which justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying that truth crushed to earth shall rise again. We shall overcome because there is something in this universe that justifies James Russell Lowell in saying truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. His words were personally prophetic, and in early spring of 1968, as my friend Chris Hauser reminded me this morning, instead of taking a trip upon invitation by Thomas Merton to Gethsemane and the Abbey there, 
king declined Merton's request, and instead of a few days in repose, in the last week of March 1968, he made his way to Memphis to lend his support to the city's sanitation workers, men and women who were not being paid when the weather was bad and they were sent home. My mother was in the hospital getting ready, ready to give birth to me when King was gathering, gathering with those there struggling to make ends meet, gathering in solidarity with those who deserve fair treatment. In the gathering the evening of April 3rd, the day I was exactly one week old in Pekin, Illinois, King gave his I've been to the mountaintop speech on the evening before his death. And in it, he rallied his beleaguered followers saying this, it really doesn't happen now what happens to me. Some have been talking about the threats that are out there. And you've been wondering what would happen to me because of some of our sick white brothers. And I will tell you now, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. His own followers said at the mountaintop speech, his, stoops were, his shoulders were beginning to stoop. His cadence was less driven. He was weary now. And he told them, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you children, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I want you to know tonight I am happy. And I'm not worried about anything. And I am fearing no man. For mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. His words were personally prophetic. And the next day in Memphis on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, he was fatally shot. Five days later, his heartbroken parents, his young wife Coretta, and four children under the age of 12 laid him to rest. President Lyndon Baines Johnson declared the day a national day of mourning. A crowd of 300,000 attended his funeral, and if I would have been capable, I would have myself, for his methods have informed mine his methods have inspired me to see Jesus a clear, to have mercy for both sides, to call both sides to mercy and love, to go both sides away from demonization. He is one of the 10 20th century martyrs from around the world who are depicted in statues above the great west door of Westminster Abbey in London. If you are ever there, do not miss it. Posthumously, he's been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Congressional Gold Medal, Time Magazine Person of the Century poll ranked him sixth. A 2005 joint study by the Discovery Channel and AOL voted him the third greatest American behind Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. A very recent Gallup poll named him the second most admired person in the 20th century. But I would be remiss today if I did not say 
He was not a perfect man. And sadly, some of the things that I'm about to say have been strongly on the minds of some of you listening. And I was getting there, but grace always calls us to come to these things last. Since his death, revelations of his human frailty have been observed by objective historical, historical inquiry, and these revelations have been spotlighted by his detractors. The latter detractors have spotlighted, no doubt, these frailties of King in an effort to undermine not only his credibility, but sadly, the credibility of his life, work, and cause. King worked during the height of the Cold War when communism ranked as our greatest enemy and as the nation became fearful and punchy and some of you were doing bomb drills in your schools, not just tornado drills, our nation fell into the Red Scare and McCarthyism and consequently King became suspect to the powers that be. I am clear by my estimation that history has proven him to be no communist though he admittedly tired of the inequities and abuses that he saw his people suffering under democratic capitalism, where they had once legally and now tacitly been purchasable commodities. He had a famously mutually antagonistic relationship with the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, and I might add as a parenthetical, J. Edgar Hoover's private life, now as we look back, had plenty of interesting details as well. With the consent of the Attorney General Robert Kennedy, wiretaps were placed on King and his associates for several years, and suffice to say, the tapes did not prove to be a King to be a communist. As a matter of fact, if anything, the opposite was revealed. He was a patriot. Sadly, those tapes did reveal some things. The tapes and the constant surveillance did reveal that accusations of King's sexual impropriety were not unfounded. After his death, many continued to defend him against these so-called rumors, but once the Freedom of Information Act released the transcript of many of those tapes in his hotel rooms, sadly even those closest to King say they revealed impropriety. Those closest to him seldom argue that point. I will say that King's attorney and close friend Clarence B. Jones said that while there was fault there, much of what was recorded was only midnight talk or just two close friends joking around about women. But there was no excuse. King was also accused of plagiarism. It is well documented that he often lifted long sections from other sources for use in his writings and speeches without ascribing credit. Concerns about his doctoral dissertation at Boston University led to a formal inquiry by university officials. The upshot of the investigation was that a full third of his thesis had been plagiarized from a paper written by an earlier graduate student. His degree, though, was not revoked because the committee said it still made an intelligent contribution to scholarship. King scholar Claiborne Carson called this textual appropriation and said the habit was pervasive throughout King's entire academic and vocational career. Keith Miller has argued that the practice falls within the tradition of African-American folk preaching and should not be viewed so harshly. 
However, Theodore Pappas later pointed out, King took an entire class on scholarly standards and plagiarism during his grad work at Boston University. He should have known better. All of these disclosures, interestingly, and I believe fortunately, have not fatally damaged his memory nor his cause. Antonio, I'd love for you guys to come and get ready to sing. <clears throat> as I say something very critically important for all of us here today. The disclosures of his frailties and fissures have in a profound way underscored the reality that he was not simply a hero. He was no angel and he was certainly no God. These frailties have underscored that he was not a hero he was a human hero. And the only kind of hero that actually exists amongst humans, and that is a flawed, frail, human hero. One of the sad defense mechanisms utilized by our lesser self, you and me, one of the sad defense mechanisms used by our shadow side is our tendency to elevate our heroes and saints to such mythological, supernatural heights. And the reason we elevate them to these impossible standards is not for their sake, it's for ours. Because the result, once we get them in that marble statue, once we place them above the door at Westminster Abbey, we then are relieved of any serious responsibility to imitate them, and we are left with a very, with a much simpler duty to praise and honor them. For it is much easier to honor King than live like him. And the same is true of Jesus, the one he followed, who was never wont to ask for worship, but often ask for us to follow him. Down deep inside, we all know that superficial veneration is much easier than committed imitation. And as Philip Yancey so well stated, King's moral weaknesses provide a convenient excuse for anyone who wants to avoid his message. And ironically, people perpetrating what I believe is one of the, one of the most egregious sins, racism, those people are still quick to pounce on his flaws while blatantly unwilling to see the two before in their own eye. What jeopardy we are in in this world if the flaws of the messenger invalidate the message? What jeopardy? His flaws were unfortunate, but for me they were not undermining. Periodically, for reasons beyond us, humility and force, mercy and truth, grace and power, periodically, every century, maybe every millennia, these things descend in momentous proportions on a human being. Unless that human being is fully God, which only one has been, 
It is the weight of that heavy mantle, not evil, that reveals the fissures and flaws in their constitution. And on this day before tomorrow, I say on behalf of this one who has impacted me so deeply, what a load he bore on his young black shoulders, he never saw 40 years. What a life he lived, what a work he did, what a legacy he left, what an inspiration he persists to be. Worship him? No. Follow him? We must. And as our benediction and prayer today, from the words of our friend, Philip Yancey, many of the Christians who still balk at seeing Martin Luther King Jr. as God's instrument have no problem worshiping in churches that once portrayed him as the enemy that opposed his ideals and that either directly or indirectly perpetuated the sin of racism he fought with his own body. We saw the mode in his eye, but not the beams in our own. Only one thing haunts me more than the sins of my past. What sins am I blind to today? It took the greatness of Martin Luther King Jr. to awaken the conscience of a nation in the last century. What now keeps us in this new century from realizing the beloved community of justice, peace, and love for which King fought and died? On the wrong side of what issues does the church stubbornly plant its feet today? As King used to say, the presence of injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And as he sat at that table and said, I think I am on the right side of this. May our cause and every cause be tempered always by grace, mercy, and humility. And may we all trust the sincere voice deep inside our own heart and may somewhere in the course of this life we find things that are not only worth living for but are even worth dying for and then give ourselves to those things as our Lord Jesus Christ did some 2,000 years ago. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. That is the good news. And to that end, I am thankful to be a part of a little church called Grace Point and a big church called the Church of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? amen. Go in God's grace and be good to one another.